0: welcome all you back of the napkin ninjas you elevator pitch artists build a jet while you fly at school of hard knocks heroes dreamers and doers join us in the foxhole in the arena of life this is the grand plaster podcast a show about innovators entrepreneurs and leaders and the origin stories that made them who they are today grand Graham Plaster here with Pete Newell. Welcome, Pete. Hey, thank you. I interviewed you for an older podcast a couple of years ago. It's still out there on the interwebs. People can find it, and it's a great conversation. Hopefully, the quality of this recording is a little bit better, and uh, there's probably more recent things to talk about, but before we jump into that, I just want to hear your background, Pete. So tell me, you know, how did you grow up? How did you end up in the military, and what were some of the things that kind of made you the person you are today?
1: So I grew up in the military, you know, my father was an army officer, um, you know, from the 1950s until he retired, um, literally the year that I was commissioned. So I spent, you know, the better part of my life, you know, living on military bases in the sixties and seventies and a little bit in the eighties and it essentially moved all over the country. The you know, I went to, went to high school in Fairfax, Virginia for three years and then left there and moved to Fort Riley, Kansas. And you went from a high school that had 5,000 people into it to a high school that had 500 in it. Um, I think the, you know, I would say both the, the terms of what makes you successful or, or, you know, how I got where I am, I would say it's just a series of accidents. Steve Blank and I had this conversation about serendipity, and and if serendipity keeps striking you on the head over and over and over again, you're you're doing the right thing. Um, In my case, I was a horrible, horrible student. I hated going to school, Uh, and not because I'm not bright, but maybe I'm not. Um, But I was just absolutely bored beyond tears sitting in a classroom, you know, learning things from a teacher sitting in the front of the room, so... You know, my subpar GPA, you know, only got me a couple of miles down the road to the the local agricultural college. And, you know, I landed at Kansas State University with absolutely no plan in life. In, in fact, I was so bad that you know, my dad came home one day with with brochures for um, a tool and dye um, trade school, which he thought would be a really good idea for me. Yeah. Yeah. And then the next time he showed up with, with, was uh, with enlistment brochures for the military. So so absolutely not a lot of faith and expectation to me as, as a kid. Um, I, you know, spent six years at Kansas State University. I will tell you that that the first three years I was there, I had no business being there. I had no idea what I was doing, no idea what I wanted to do. I was a crappy student and, and eventually was invited to take a year off uh, by the university. And it was in that year, when I was literally working three jobs and trying to stay afloat. You know, I worked at an ice plant, uh, bagging ice during the day, and uh, worked for the local Pizza Hut in the afternoon. And, a, and, and on the weekends, I was the doorman bouncer on a bar in a college town. And, you know, I realized in that process that working for minimum wage sucked. And there was absolutely no way that I was ever going to get anywhere in life working 70 or 80 hours of work for for minimum wage. And, you know, about that point, I also realized that that I had joined the National Guard, you know, as as a private, you know, right out of high school. And I realized that the environment that I was in, the discipline that that it gave me, but the problems that it gave me every day was more attractive to what I was doing. And I really decided that that's what I wanted to keep doing. So my drive to go back to college and, and actually graduate was more a case of, I really do want to be an army officer. And, and I want to be an instrument and I want to do cool things. And that's what got me through college. I, you know, I literally took the first best fastest degree program I could to, to get the hell out of town and, and get my commission and get on the road to doing other things. Um, you know as a, as a military officer I would say you know I don't know what made me successful uh, I like problems I thrive on finding new problems and solving them and, and working doggedly into it and, and quite frankly growing up in the military in the 80s and 90s presented all kinds of different problems no different than it is today but but if you thrive in that environment and yeah, you'll throw yourself into it um, you will create value for people that that they'll continue to push you in the right places. So a lot of that discipline, you know, my sense as an entrepreneur is is I've been, I'll say this, and I'll say it often, I have been homeless before. Uh, I have known what it works to to work for nothing and, and not be able to get anywhere. So as an entrepreneur, you know, I could say my baseline is lower than most people. I did that and I survived it and I'm okay. Um, so everything after that allows you to to look at um, risk and accept risks differently than most people. You know, it's a discomfort though. If you truly understand discomfort, then then most things just don't bother you. I know that's a really long answer. but
0: It's not actually not quite long enough because I want to know a little bit about your military career. So what are some of the highlights and some of the people you worked with during your time in uniform?
1: Oh, well, let's start with the people. You know, I worked for some of the absolute best bosses in the business and I worked for some of the the absolute worst. So, you know, I started out as a lieutenant in the 82nd Airborne Division. You know, know, my first uh, battalion commander was absolutely forgettable, but he was replaced by a guy named John Vines. And, you know, if anybody knows that I mentioned the word Vines to anybody in the military, they know exactly who you're talking about. You know, as a lieutenant, he gave me—I would say—gave me more crap. He gave me more freedom and the expectations to go with it than I think I've ever had in a job before. I was doing things for him that that majors and other units weren't allowed to do. Yeah, yeah, and it was just an absolutely amazing environment to work in. Um, I ended up, you know, leaving the eighty second and going to Europe, and you know, I, I. I went from an airborne unit to commanding a, a heavy mechanized infantry unit working for a guy who was absolutely the absolute worst battalion commander I've ever seen. Um, you know, somebody who pitted people against each other uh, that, that had more ego than, than anybody I could ever imagine. And then I left there and I went to, you know, 3rd Ranger Battalion where, uh, you know, I got there right after Somalia and they were replacing and changing lots of people, but, but I was there with um, Frank Kearney, um, Craig Nixon, uh, Steve Townsend, uh, Paul O'Neill, who, or Mark O'Neill, who eventually went on to command Delta, Eric Carilla, who's now the, the CENTCOM commander, um, Rich Clark, who's the SOCOM commander, you know, just absolutely surrounded by absolutely tremendous people. And from there, I went to, you know, Fort Carson for, you know, I have the other time. Um, I was in the Pentagon on 9-11. I was one of the the watch officers in the National Military Command Center. Uh, You know, you you see the movies about the guys with the keys to the nuclear arsenal and other things. That was me on 9-11. You know, 9-11 leaves an indelible mark on you, particularly to be on watch that day and after after to watch the... The national command authority actually work uh, in real time and in crisis is is just an amazing thing. Um, I commanded uh, an infantry battalion in Kosovo. Actually, I took command of it in Kosovo, uh, and then took it to Iraq, uh, where you know I was part of the first Marine Division in the second Battle of Fallujah. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think uh, our battalion left Fallujah with with now a Medal of Honor, uh, seven silver stars, and more bronze star than I that I care to remember. <clears throat> Later, I would uh, spend you know two fabulous years an observer controller at the Joint Multinational Readiness Center in you know, Hammelville, Germany, where where I really got to study of the leadership of of different units who were preparing to deploy, and I even today in business, you know, that time as an OC, you know, has left an indelible mark on on how I observe things. Um, and then I spent, you know, another uh, couple of years as a brigade commander uh, of a brigade, you know, based out of Fort Bliss, but we spent a year in Iraq. And then obviously I landed uh, the rapid equipping force uh, the last three years of my, my career. So I covered a lot of ground, uh, a little bit of all over the place, you know, uh, yet again, I, I think the, yeah you know, whether it's, it's um, you know, Petraeus, McChrystal, Carney, uh, Vines, Townsend, Nixon, um, all of those people just left an incredible track record of, of you know, great leaders to follow. And then I had this benchmark of, of the absolute worst in the world <laughs> that I could actually measure them against. So it was an interesting life.
0: So, Your last tour with the Rapid Equipping Force was probably a pretty pivotal uh, launch pad, you know, to to go from into, you know, hacking for defense and and everything you've done in defense innovation, right? So can you explain to some people that maybe don't know much about REF what that was and and what you accomplished there?
1: So the Rapid Equipping Force was the Army's response to its inability to get, Technologies onto the battlefield to solve problems that were emerging faster than the acquisition system um, could could recognize them and do something about them. Uh, literally, you know, organization that was beautifully designed by Bruce Jetty. Um, uh, back when he was uh the science advisor to the vice chief of staff of the army at the beginning of the Afghanistan war. Um by the time I got there. I think they were stood up in 2000. I don't know, they were seven years into it. I was the fourth or fifth director. You know, it was, a, it was 120 people with a $160 million budget and only one real boss, and that was the the vice chief of staff of the Army. The general Corelli, who was the vice at the time when I took the job, you know, sat me down in, in his own special way, said, if if your plan is to come in this office and blow sunshine up my thought about all the great things that are happening in the world, you're not doing your job. Because I want you to go out there and find things that are broken. I want you to fix them. And then I want you to come back and tell me why the Army can't do what it's supposed to do and fix them itself. And then I want you to help fix it. So I, I think, you know, people have a, mis, I don't know, a misperception of what, at least what my role was for a long time. You know, they got enamored with REF being an organization that, that found cool stuff and pitched it over the fence and littered the battlefield with, with half-baked ideas and, and some things that work and some things that didn't. And, and quite frankly, you know, REF did themselves no favors by allowing that, that observation to continue. But the reality is, you know, they were absolutely brilliant people at ferreting out problems that people weren't recognizing and then very quickly building MVPs for those things and putting them back on the battlefield. Um, first to prove that the problem they thought they had was correct, and then second to prove that there was a way to solve it. Unfortunately, you know, by the time I got there, they were really enamored with uh, just get stuff on the battlefield and and call it a day. The I got to ref at about the time, you know, we were doing the surge in, in Afghanistan in, in two thousand. 10 and and I had not been in Afghanistan for probably five years by then so I went back and you know the first guys I run into are former you know friends from third Ranger battalion who are now Brigade commanders and you know I had very frank conversations with them about what was going on inside Kandahar and outside Kandahar and and, and even up at Bagram and you know I the first guy I run into is, is Art Kandarian, who, who commanded the brigade from the 101st who thought they were going to Iraq and were turned on a dime and sent to Kandahar. So here's a brigade that, that's not trained for the environment it's going to, um, not equipped for it, and, and literally is slammed in the middle of a, a, um, a city that's about to go up and torches, And, you know, Art, when I saw Art on the side of the airfield, he literally looked like a cadaver. He'd probably lost twenty pounds in five weeks. Yeah, and he was losing soldiers at a rate that that I was it's still shocking to me. Yeah, and, and literally, when I asked him, you know, I've got the checkbook, I can do anything. You know, what do you want me to do? Is just Art looked at me and said, "I, because I'm tired of people asking me that question. I just want them to do something." You know, the next guy I ran into was Jeff Martindale, who was also you know, a peer from 3rd Range of Battalion, who had the 2nd Brigade who had showed up of the surge. And, and Martindale was not in the middle of the city, so he had a little more patience with the conversation. And he said, you know, I need somebody to do something about these dismounted IEDs. And, and when I looked at him, I said, I, you know, I've been in every headquarters out here. There's nothing about dismounted IED attacks on the top 10 of any headquarters. What are you talking about? And he started pulling out his um, charts and talking about the number of IED attacks against his dismounted squads. And that, the last guy I ran into was Eric Carillo, who at the time was the the Special Operations Task Force commander of Bagram that was doing, you know, the heavy lifting, you know, searching for Al-Qaeda. And Eric was literally winding down a mission, you know, the day I was in his headquarters. And we got to talking about it and he said, you know, I, he my problem is I'm losing special operators in the last hundred yards for the target, and I can't replace them. He you goes, know, so he said, I need you to take, you know, that route clearance stuff that's going up and down the highways and shrink it down so that fits in the back of a Chinook, so that I can clear a pathway to get to the front door of the building I got to get to. <clears throat> I took all that serious, you know, we did some data crunching, and we found the, the, um, from the middle of 2010, when the Marines went into the Korongar Valley, the number of, of IAD attacks against dismounted squads went from one or two a month to a high of 800, the month that I was in Kandahar, and that was less than nine months. At the time that was going on, the Pentagon was in the middle of a $5 billion program to send NRAPs to, to Afghanistan. But these guys weren't in NRAPs. they were walking around on canals and in, you know, goat trails. And yeah, <laughs> I was naive. I, I literally on a plane back from Afghanistan. I I sacked up this note, and it just my personal reflection of the conversations. I sent it to General Corelli, who sent it to you know the jito director and the um, the JROCK director and the director of Cape and. It's like if there were a three star who would be pissed off by a colonel peeing on the leg, he sent it to him. And by the time I landed, you know, back in D.C., I probably had a half dozen um, not so pleasant invites to come explain myself to, to various general officers. And I laugh saying this, you know, my my introduction to uh, the Jido Director General Barbero, who turned out to be a great fan of the time. Um, I really thought I was walking through a phalanx of nights as I walked through the building and his staff to get to his door. And I was convinced one of them was going to gut me on the way through the door. Um, But quite frankly, you know, I got in there and and the conversation I had with the JIDO director was very frank. Um, And by the time I finished showing him pictures and charts and things like that, he said, you know what, you could go solve the problem. and, And I will give you whatever resource you need to do but go do it. Yeah, you know, it's there's much longer story, but but I think that that one month period of time is my introduction to the rapid equipment force is completely flipped my expectation of what my mission was, and quite frankly, it, it, that's the that's the scar that I keep scratching today is this this observation that that today problems emerge faster than we recognize them. And in and, and the time that it takes us to recognize a problem and articulate it to other people, recruit other people to work on it, produce an MVP, get it back in the hand of the, the person who had it, to convince that's the problem we should be solving, and then produce a solution. we are killing people in the time it takes us to do that oodle loop. You're watching it happen in Ukraine right now to the Russians. The Russians are dying right and left because they cannot keep up with the speed at which the Ukrainians are playing tech on the battlefield. And the Ukrainians are not in near peer competitor to the Russians.
0: I have a theory. I'd be curious to know what you think. It's based on the fact that we've had a lot of technological advancement in the last, you know, two decades, uh, simultaneous to uh, waging, you know, multiple asymmetrical wars. Uh, so we have a tech native, um, you know, a war population. And we threw a lot of money, after 9-11, we threw a lot of money at the problem, right? From different angles, obviously through REF and other programs. So we have the proliferation of different types of innovation hubs and, and initiatives. Um, and I anticipate that we will see, you know, we're, we're at the point now where we're seeing a lot of these, these guys and these men and women who have gone through this, this period of warfare, they're they're graduating out of uniform. They're transitioning. I think we're going to see a lot of them blossom into technology, uh, you know, founders. You know, obviously we have some great programs to help them transition to do that. But I think culturally, we're getting ready to see a lot of them go that direction because I think the kind of warfare that we've been in has actually been fertile ground to allow people to cut their teeth on solving problems and being agile. So I'd be curious to know kind of your thoughts, especially, and maybe you could kind of answer that question and also talk a little bit about what happening for defense is doing uh, what you're seeing more strategically from your position, you know, in Silicon Valley.
1: So I would
0: now back up a little bit
1: to your comment about, you know, the value of veterans and people coming out of service and, and being involved in businesses. And I, you know, I probably counsel two or three people a week who are getting ready to leave. They're thinking you know, technology is something I want to do. Um, I remind all of them to, to think about the things that made them successful as um, either non-commissioned officers or, or officers in the military. It's not necessarily the fact that you were in the military as much as the, your ability to discipline the process of solving problems and knowing when to react strongly to something and, and when not to react. It's it really those great hard and soft leadership skills that, that are so important. Um, so whether it's, it's joining a startup or joining a scaling company or, or joining a, you know, no kidding, large company, that, that discipline, the problem solving process, the leadership skills, they're all critically important to, to companies. Um, it's not an accident, you know. The BMT was started by you know a group of veterans. Um, we're probably you know less than a quarter of veterans now. It really is a, I almost said dysfunctional group of really brilliant people. It it is it is a diverse group of of very brilliant people um, who tend to mix their backgrounds really well together to produce something that that is really difficult. To, to get in most places. The the part about recognizing technology and the problems and other things, absolutely. Um, Taking it one step further though, is the same problems that we see on the battlefield in most cases are represented in the commercial world as well. We're not really good at understanding that, but, but for the folks who spend time, you know, looking at the next thing and talking to lots of people, they find that that there really are a lot of similarities between the two and then they realize that their background and leadership and, and problem solving and other things is just as valuable working in that commercial space as it was in the military um so that's one i, I think the i would say that the challenge particularly in the innovation space and um, i can debate all day long whether we've actually thrown a lot of money at it we've we've my humble opinion: We've thrown pissant money at it. We've never really done it seriously. Um, there's no. I didn't, I didn't mean
0: money in the innovation bucket per se. I was talking about like OCO funding. You know, after nine eleven, there was a lot of spending on defense in general as well. Uh, I mean.
1: okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think the the challenge we have, and I'll put it this way: If you look at REF, which no longer exists, um. DIU, AFWORKS, NAVALX, even AAL, the people who stood those organizations up and the ones who were in it originally uh, are all gone. And I'm not just, you know, there's, there's one guy left and that's Steve Buto at, at DIU. Um, 90% of them are not only not in those organizations anymore, they're not in service anymore. So they did really great things standing these organizations up and, and there was no place to put them. There's no profession in the military that connects the output of innovation to the input of warfighting. There's not a professional job. There's not a professional pathway. um, There's no doctrine for it. So so now we're left with all these really, really bright young men and women who have this sense of passion for um, entrepreneurial solutions, to technical or policy or um, operational plans who have no place to go to, to, to do their thing. And they simply go frustrated and they leave. I'm the same way. You know, the day I realized that the Army was not going to let me stay at rough, In fact, they tried to get me to leave halfway through my tour um, and send me to, you know, a job that was supposed to groom me to be a general officer. Um, I realized that as a general officer, I would never, ever be allowed to do the thing that I was most passionate about. And it took me less than 30 seconds to decide that it was time for me to retire. That's happening every day with these bright young folks that that we're counting on to to solve these emerging problems that we haven't recognized yet. Yet. Um, We don't have a way to professionally raise them, nor do we have jobs for them to do in between, you know, stints doing other things. So they leave. And, And it is... Yeah, you know, we've talked about the military bleeding talent forever. This is talent that you don't grow overnight. It it literally takes years to build these people up and get them into positions where they can actually do this.
0: So tell me about the birth of Hacking for Defense and where is that program now?
1: So um, interesting enough, you know, when we first started BMNT, we had a a government client who asked for a study. And essentially what they were trying to do, they were supposed to produce a document, you know, based on the army's needs in 2025. And there was a requirement from Congress that they include a significant portion on the role of non-traditionals and venture um, founded companies in that process. And they were frustrated because they kept asking people in Silicon Valley, Could you give us white papers, explain to us and give us stuff for this, this thing. And they wouldn't get anything. And you know, long story short, you know, the sponsor of the project came to us and said, I, I have to produce this document by October. And, and, you know, somebody I'd known for a while, and he basically said, can you prove that there is a way for DOD to have a conversation with Silicon Valley about something that's important to DOD. Yeah, and knowing my background on problems and the amount of time that I had spent on the campus at Stanford University and other places, I knew that if I walked in a room with the right sort of problems, i get people to talk to me all day long. Um, and in fact, I knew that, that my take on problems was the best collateral I could ever walk into the value with. So, so my answer to the guy was yes and he said great you'll get a contract in a month but we need you to start today so we decided to round up a bunch of um students at stanford over spring break and essentially pay them for a week to, uh, to take a government problem when we use supply chain issues in the pacific uh, and parse that into a bunch of mini problems and rewrite that into something that sounded like English that they could go talk to people in the Valley with. And the second part of that assignment was they needed to recruit three or four people from the Valley to work with them, but turn that, that problem statement into something that sounded like a dual-use problem, which means I could read it, and it could be a military problem or it could be a commercial problem. And then the exit from that was you're going to pitch this to you know one of the managing partners from one of the, the venture capital firms on Sand Hill. You know, and and you know, if they snatch it out of hand and say, "Yeah, let me send this to my portfolio companies," you get an A, and and we pat ourselves on the back. Um, just incidentally, you know, one of those students that we were working with was taking Steve Blank's Lean Launchpad class, and and drugged Steve down to the office one day, and I had no idea what Steve was, but this is where I met Steve. Um, Steve and I sat in the office for what was supposed to be a 20-minute conversation uh, for four and a half hours on two dry erase boards. And Steve's actually, you know, he, he wrote out, you know, lean theory. And then I wrote out problem sourcing, curation on the battlefield, to discovery, the incubation, or whatever else. He realized that, that what we had drawn on the boards was identical. He and I were doing the same thing. We just used different words. And to Steve's credit, you know, as he walked out the door, he said, you know, um, we're going to take everything I've done and we're going to solve no place problem. So, at the end of this exercise, you know, we were on campus uh, out briefing, you know, former Secretary Bill Perry, um, the managing partner from our Rice Hadley Gates, Anya Manuel, um, another former assistant secretary and a few other people and and the government client, we basically said, here's the experiment we ran. We proved that we can do this. We proved that this process of bringing military problems in and turning them into do use problems is attractive and get people to talk. And, and here's all this collateral we have. Best market research in the world on those four problems. Um, and then we looked at Bill Perry and said, unfortunately, we use Stanford students over spring break to get it done. And Stanford students want to go into class Aren't available to do this kind of work. So, so it's in our mind is not a scalable practice. And you know, we had a kid stand up in the room, had no military background, and said, I said, wait a minute, had this been a class at Stanford, I would have taken it. And then Bill Perry looked at Steve Blank, who had worked for Bill Perry at one time, and said, so Guess what? And you know, we don't know nine months later, we launched this class called Hacking for Defense at Stanford. When we set out to launch the loss of class, we didn't know that Stanford would ever let us teach it. We didn't know that the government would give us problems. Uh, we didn't know that students would actually take it. Uh, but, but surprisingly, um, we had uh, 14 government agencies bring us 18 problems for the first course. We had over. 130 students sign up and register for a class that only sees 32. And and Stanford not only let us teach it, but uh, um, Tom Byers, the head of the Stanford Venture um, Technology Program, actually became the sponsor. And I got to tell you, to get a new class into a university in under three years is like light speed. And we did it in nine months. Um, Before we ever taught the first class, we had other universities come to us and ask if they could have the course guide. Of course, there wasn't one, which meant we had to write one. But um, we got through that first class and it was amazing. And I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, Capella Space and and some of the other, you know, great, amazing companies that came out of it. But more importantly, the the students that took that class continued to work on government problems afterwards. Now, I would say, you know, try to count the other night. I think there are five separate CEOs of companies today that are doing defense business who came out of that class. Um, Hacking for defense was taught in 56 universities in the United States this year. Uh, I think four in Australia and... um, 10 or 12 in the United Kingdom. And we eventually, because, you know, we got to ask if you can do defense, can you do energy? Can you do security? Can you do homeland? Can you do uh, climate? You know, there's a hacking for defense program obviously in the United States. Um, Homeland Security has a program for hacking for Homeland Security. Um, There's an energy program taught at Columbia. Uh, There are eight University is teaching a hacking for climate program. Uh, there is um, a hacking for health and human services in the UK and a hacking for police in the UK. Um, and I think I'm forgetting somebody. I'll probably get one. Um, the bottom line is, you know, eventually we spun out a nonprofit called the Common Mission Project, which does the, the academic um, administration of the hacking for, courses, they certify the instructors, they deliver problems to the students, they look at the quality of the universities, and they look at the, um, the actual way we teach the course and ensure that we're, we're actually improving the course over time. The The critical output of, of the H4 programs, as much as I love the companies that get started and other things is we are um, teaching young, brilliant college students about entrepreneurship while they're also solving critical problems for our country, which is another form of public service or civics or something else. But quite frankly, these students are learning about how our government and our world works in a manner that, that they don't get in any other place in their education. Um, the Stanford students that take this course will tell you that this is the hardest course they take in their Stanford career, but also the most rewarding. Because it allows them to to use everything they've learned at the university, every network they built, to work on a real problem with real people, produce real solutions that that gives them real experience that leads to a better job. And we have industry partners who who are supporting the Common Mission Project um, because they are most interested in hiring the output of the course, which is really bright students who understand entrepreneurship.
0: So, how have you navigated two different things that are kind of hot topics right now? You look at the trusted capital marketplace and the concern about intellectual property—you know, um, protections around national security, innovation, um, and especially in the university environment. And then, uh, second, within the tech industry, there has been some hesitation or even resistance against working directly with uh, Department of Defense, like you know, with Maven and Google and things like that. So. You guys are at the epicenter of that, being on the college campuses, attracting students to work on these problems. What what has been some of your experience on that? So those are um, while they both sound like very simple um,
1: concerns, they are massively complex. And I will start with with the IP slash trusted capital marketplace. the 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 brutal reality of the marketplace is that if I'm a startup and it goes to raise money, if I don't raise enough money, my startup fails. If my startup fails, I probably go bankrupt. So if I'm doing something that I think is really cool and may have a defense application, but I'm not able to attract enough venture capital in the United States, but it might also have commercial application and the Chinese offer me money through a Chinese venture firm or through a Canadian firm backed by Chinese or somebody else, um, I'm going to take the money to keep my company afloat. Um, and I tell you, it's the most frustrating thing in the world to watch. And I, You know, the example I use all the time was a company called Alta Devices. And while I was the ref director, I was working on um, energy problems on Battlefield. And Alta made thin film solar that was, that was so thin, I could put it on top of um, Puma UAV system wings and double the the payload capacity or the length of flight time for Puma. And I literally went in to write um, Alta a two million dollar check for their entire production line uh, for what they were producing one year to do stuff. Y- at the time they were doing a series C raise. Well, the series C raise failed and they were bought by a Chinese company. And the second the Chinese bought them, I couldn't write them in check. But I got that check to them while they were doing that raise, it might have attracted more US venture dollars. But for whatever reason that, you know, the timing just didn't make it. You know, it was 10 years before Alta came back and was, was able to, to actually do government work again simply because it was a Chinese-owned company. The so, so it's a very real problem. Um, and I think it's, It's less about trusted capital, yes. When you take money from another firm, you ought to know where the money came from. Um, We run an investor's network called the Defense Investors Network. We we support it, Um, which is U.S.-backed venture capital folks who are interested in investing in dual-use companies who are interested in sitting at the table with other investors who are interested in dual-use companies and who are interested in, in having a truthful conversation with people in the Pentagon about what's valuable and what's not. Um, there are over 150 um, inf- members of that informal group who get together every month to trade deal flow, to, to talk about real life and to talk about things. So, you know, trusted capital from the trusted capital marketplace is the DOD's answer to a DOD problem. It had nothing to do with the venture capital. Said the problem was. So, trusted capital marketplace. You know, if it's not dead, it's on its last breath. It's something that could be revived, but it needs to be done from a different direction. Um, we at BMNT looked at the problem of Chinese investment differently, and and said that not all investment is bad. Um, you know, it, it sucks if you if you have Chinese money in your company, and if you have a Chinese board member and the government's interested in working for you, but they can't, then let's see what we can do to get the Chinese out of your um, company. So so with Heather Richmond in, in the charge, we created a, a private equity fund that is, is focused on removing uh, Chinese investors from companies who the government wants to do business with. So that's that's a venture capital world <clears throat> solution to a problem, versus just saying you can only do U.S. You just you, you have to get in and solve the issues rather than than trying to to treat the symptoms. So um, yeah, but, the other
0: question for you was about you know facing any cultural clashes on the university campuses related to dealing with DOD because some people have different ideas about what national security, you know, yeah, military industrial complex know. is doing. It
1: pops up every once in a while. And, and the first thing that that we have to disavow people, universities are, are cut and open campuses. And and we're very careful, particularly the hacking for defense, you know, because we take problems from not just DOD, but the NSA, the CIA, lots of other people bring problems in the classroom. The classroom is an open environment. So we always go through this process of making sure that everything is completely unclassified. Um the The challenge, I think, when it comes to the research being done at the universities, and the part that I think sucks, is if the Chinese are capable of stealing our IP and using it to build something and then scale that thing faster than we, the people who originated it, can, we have a different problem. It's not the fact that we can't protect our IP. It's the fact that we can't put it to use as fast as somebody else does. Um. That's that's a much different conversation, you know. The the fact that you know the Chinese you know are building ships at a rate a hundred times you know faster than we are, but the fact that, that that we allowed our manufacturing system to be offshored out of the country um, is a much different problem. So, so before I, I get excited about IP issues and and there are some major issues. Um, in fact, one of the One of the things that BMT has done over the past couple of years is training uh, investigators from the Air Force Office of Special uh, Investigations to better understand the venture world. So they have, uh, it is easier for them to understand how to talk to companies about um, nefarious activities by Chinese and other foreign agents um, in and around their IP. Um, But that education process of of getting people to recognize what the environment really is and how to talk about it and, and how to look for the signs of things is, is critical. Um, you don't get that education, you know, sitting on a, a military base. You, know, you get it by actually getting out on the weeds with people and actually, you know, seeing how things are done. Um, so the IP thing is an issue. I, I think it's it's not the biggest issue that we could solve, but, but one that that requires constant vigilance.
0: What... um what would you say that you're passionate about right now, you know, given the growth of Hacking for Defense and a couple different initiatives at BMNT, what, what gets you up in the morning?
1: Well, I think the,
0: the big one now is, is we're looking at um,
1: doctrine they call it the, the professional education of mission-driven entrepreneurs. You know, this, the past six months we've taught actually um, two The first two courses are what we call the Innovation Navigators course for the Navy, uh, which has really been the blueprint for how do you teach uh, senior level folks, how to not just support innovation, but but create innovation ecosystems and sustain them so that there are meaningful activities in their organizations uh, and how to turn them into a profession. The extension of that is actually creating, um, It's a conversation of Steve Blank and I and Joe Felter. I had last night is about creating a master's degree program in our defense colleges and universities in, in national security innovation. It's how do we turn entrepreneurship or mission-driven entrepreneurship into a profession inside the government, inside the public service um, space, where we have people, You know, we have more problems than we can get to. But the discipline that comes from, from this system we built with the innovation pipeline, And H four X and hacking for defense is—is that discipline is is something that can be regulated and taught and if people um, trained to do? It's a—and I'll say more of a social problem. It is—is how do we get the people we need connected, and then how do we get um, not just the operators and the entrepreneurs to understand it, but also those people who aren't entrepreneurs? You know, we started calling them Navages, how do you get contracting officers and acquisition officers and finance people whose daily job is in innovation to actually understand when the innovator entrepreneur shows up, what it is they can do to actually help them rather than, than not know what to do with something. So they're really working hard on the people side of this.
0: And what are some things, I, I think you guys just produced a book, right? Uh, for the Innovation Navigators course. You might be good yeah. to recommend to people. Is that available um, in public, or is that just for the course? Uh, no, I actually
1: um, Saberhorn, who is the the course director, is literally as we speak. I think she's she's typing. Um, we will put out the second edition, which is you know really the final version of it, uh, sometime in May. Uh, we plan to make it publicly available, uh, so you'll be able to snatch it off on Amazon. I. I'd like to say it'll be early May. Saber says it'll be early May. Uh, I'll be happy if it's after Memorial Day. But, but the Innovation Navigator book will go out. Uh, Steve Blank and I, and, uh, Steve Spear, an MIT professor, are working on a book uh, really aligned with the innovation doctrine. Um, I hope, <laughs> fingers crossed, that we'll have that book done by this fall uh, and published through Wiley uh, and Sons.
0: Excellent. And what are some um, ways that people who listen to this podcast can get involved with any of the programs that you're doing?
1: So first and foremost, I think I have uh, Rex for probably uh, 12 more employees in BMT out. So if you go to bmt.com jobs and, and hit it, uh, whether it's running the Hacking for Defense program or Homeland Security Program or working with highly technical programs at the, the Defense Logistics Agency or um, you know other classified Air Force stuff or working with Naval X or um, you know half the other folks. Um, the work at BMT is fantastic. It is, you know, professionally rewarding. Uh, it is um, a huge growth industry. The uh, the Common Mission Project is as well, is, is still looking for a few people as it expands uh, into other places. Um, there's also a great need for uh, mentors and advisors in the classroom. You know, as we expand all these H4 programs, whether it's climate or homeland security or energy or defense, um, with, with over 60 or 70 classes across the United States taught every year. Um, There is a a huge demand for problems, so if you're in the government space and you have problems, then you want really bright, um, gifted university students to work on your problem for you. Um, We want your problems. Um, If you have time and you want to donate that time to working with those types of people to help guide and mentor them through the process, um, we need that. And quite frankly, if you're a corporate out there and you really want to get get involved and, and support the program, um, the Common Mission Project has an impact fund that they use to fund the travel and prototyping for teams nationally uh, so that they don't just sit in a classroom, but they actually go visit their problem sponsors uh, and see what they do. Um, you know, CMP would always be glad to have you know, additional donations from folks that, that want to see those teams out and and about doing things. Any of those things would be hugely helpful.
0: Awesome. Well, we'll make sure that we post links in the show notes, and I really appreciate your time today, Pete, uh, especially getting a little more of the backstory behind, you know, how you ended up where you are and, and what was going into all of the uh, foundations of Hacking for Defense, which has become really a force of nature.
1: Yeah, happy to do it.
0: Thanks for the invite. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show today. I'm Graham Plaster, and you've been listening to the Graham Plaster Podcast. Get show notes and more at grandplaster.com.